Hello there. Welcome to our quarterly macro overview with co-CIO Clay Smolinski. Clay, thanks very much for joining me and joining us. You're welcome, Jules. So let's get stuck in. US markets, we've clearly had a pretty good adjustment. Is it time to to bottom fish for bargains there or, or not? Yeah, well, we should step back and think about that adjustment. Looking at the US, the S&P, the broad market index is down about 20%. The NASDAQ is down roughly 30%. Uh, and in a historical context, that's a, you know, that's a very reasonable repricing. But you need to place that repricing in the context of what we've just come from, which was a bubble environment where valuations were very historically high. And the valuations were historically high because investors had been conditioned by low rates and the belief that they were going to stay low for a long time. So when I think about it, that 20% fall is, when you put it in context, is more about taking, you know, skimming off the euphoria that was surrounding markets. And then we need to think about what's the current situation today. So today we have an inflation problem. Everyone knows it, but why do we have it? So essentially, during COVID, the US government created essentially 35% addition to the money stock. So US bank deposits went from $13 trillion to $18 trillion in 18 months' time. And then, so you did that, so you created 35% more money, but the productive capacity of the economy, and I mean trained workers, plant and equipment, the ability to produce real goods and services, did not change and that all of that new money starts chasing that productive capacity and with a lag, the price of that productive capacity then goes up. It's just a balancing. And that's not going to solve itself by quickly. So now the central banks, they know they've overstepped. They now need to kill inflation and they're doing that via hiking rates and trying to remove money from the system. And the mechanism to kill inflation is really to trigger a recession that lowers the demand on those productive assets, be it wages and goods and services. Now, creating 35% new money, very good for asset prices. Withdrawing money from the system, driving a recession, very bad for asset prices. So a long way to get back to your original question of is it time to bottom fish? So yes, we have seen a repricing in markets. Opportunities on the long side are becoming more plentiful, but they're not as plentiful as you may think. And that's simply because we were coming from such an extended and euphoric starting position. So just to extend that question a little bit, what are the potential sort of bull cases there that could trip us up. I mean, so lots of savings have gone into the system. Maybe consumer balance sheets are awesome, or maybe as stimulus is drained back out, bank credit picks up. Or so, where where could be we, we be wrong about being a bit cautious on yes. Where you can be wrong is first just on the sentiment. So I think we've gone from believing inflation. Well, the the, the market believed inflation was never going to come back. You know, it was Japan, to inflation is transitory, to, oh, wow, now we've got actually an inflation problem and the recession is nigh. There's, no, there's, there's nothing that says that we need to fall off a cliff 
next week, right? And there's you know that 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 market sentiment has moved to more of a recessionary belief, and if that takes longer to transpire, you can have some pretty interesting bounces in in that regard. A second bull case is so we've got two very large economies in the world. So we've got the US, which people believe is moving into a recession, but we have China as well, and that is in a recession. And potentially it is, once they can get past COVID, can then move into that recovery phase. Uh, the Chinese government has not done a lot of, you know, they have not really stimulated and certainly not to the extent that we saw in other parts of the world. And that can come. And that can be another driver just to, to aggregate demand, which can maybe offset some of the weakness that you would expect to see in the US. So in, in that context, how, how is China behaving? You, you know, maybe worth specifying it had a massive setback in March. So, so cheap and unloved got less loved and cheaper. But what's happened since then to the Chinese equity market? And what's that telling us? So, so I think China is in a very interesting space and most of the indicators that you would see today tell you that it feels like we are in a bottoming process and it, and it's time to buy so again we need to step back and think about context right so china is in a recession you've seen a huge basically repricing and and changing level activity of their property market before the property reform so we're, you know we're seeing property sales down 50% in that country so we're already in a large recession. We had all of the regulatory crackdown, which I think was more important for investor sentiment than the economy per se, but that certainly soured sentiment. Uh, and of course, we've had all the COVID lockdowns. So one of the most toughest economic periods they've had over the past 20 years. But it feels like all of those factors are now starting to turn. Oh, and, and I'll also point out that investor apathy. So... Clear value in China, but investors are kind of of the mood of just look. I don't. I don't want a piece of it. Uh, and that was linked to obviously the events in Russia and the you know the more worries around China in from a geopolitical sense. And it very much reminds me of investor response during the European sovereign crisis around Europe, where it was just like I don't want to engage in the in the discussion. And we we know how that played out in terms of future opportunities. Well, um, no, we don't. Let, let's, re, let's reflect on that because it's worth emphasising the money we made <laughs> in that period because it, cause what I wanted to ask you about was to preempt the question, but what's the catalyst? How, you know, what if it stays cheap forever? What, what if someone, if no one else believes it, it'll stay cheap forever? Just reflect on what happened in that European period, you know, crisis period, especially through to Brexit and then the immediate, you know, yes, yes. bounce after that. Well, well. People remember that it was the constant back and forward around the European sovereign crisis. Would Germany, you know, would Germany bail out the, the peripheral states? Uh, we had Draghi kind of put a line underneath it with "We will do whatever it takes" statement. I believe that was June two thousand and twelve. I'm if I get my memory correct. And then from that period, it was actually a slow burn for investors to come back. But you saw, you know, forty fifty percent rise in that market over the next few years. Um, and you, you know, there was some tremendous gains to be made. European banks doubled. and So there are these interesting parallels. And, and, when, and when people simply don't want to engage in the subject anymore, that sends off the, it says we've got, to, we've got to be looking here. So the catalyst for China, well, what are we seeing now? So the government 
is starting to be a bit more open to stimulus packages. We've seen some of the stimulus packages around autos, consumption. Look, you're not going to see the effect of those until we move past this COVID period, but I think we've seen every other country in the world move past COVID. Uh, zero COVID forever is not a, it's just not a, a realistic strategy, and I think there will be a resolution there. So you're starting to see a turn in stimulus. You're certainly starting to see a turn in from that regulatory and government policies around markets, around the tech companies. They were the problem. You know, we were putting in a lot of regulation, which, to be fair, was no different from what the Europeans were doing around regulation. But now these companies are now being viewed a bit more of the solution rather than the problem. So... Unemployment, generating employment and new investment is a you know, something they want to do. A player like Tencent saying, look, we will invest in building out uh, a local domestic indigenous uh, software as a service style industry and investing in those areas. That's seen as a big positive. So you're starting to see that change. And importantly, you're now starting to see it in stock prices. So Chinese market felt like it bottomed uh, it really bottomed after the after the, the Ukrainian invasion and since then whilst other markets have been rolling over it has been starting to trend up so uh, we would be quite positive uh, on the outlook there just to belabor the point the Chinese experience is you know they're, they're still in COVID we got an mRNA vaccine in the West relatively quickly you know Bianca's talking to and invested in Everest Pharmaceutical and, and Cancer Bio. And it looks like a mRNA vaccine is, I don't know, six months out, nine months out, four months out. We can't know because it's they've got to get a drug candidate and all that. But just reflect on the impact of vaccines being developed in the West and, and what happened from then on. Uh, in regards to our ability to, to open up. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so... We saw it in that portfolio, right? So back in October 2021, what were the cheapest areas of the market? It was all of the cyclicals, all of those industrials. It was travel. It was those kind of exposed industries. The day of the Moderna vaccine efficacy, those stocks went up 20% in a day and you saw this huge rotation in the market one can never be so certain of these things, but the day you get an announcement around zero COVID, an Indigenous vaccine efficacy data, a, a plan of, a, and it will be a very aggressive and accelerated rollout. You know, the classic, when the Chinese government wants to get things done, it, they tend to get it done, right? It'll be just a military-esque style effort to vaccinate the population. And odds on that when you see that, you will see a very strong reaction in the Chinese market, but also potentially uh, global markets. Again, that, that, that cyclical aspect of saying, all right, this economy is now going to recover aggressively. So, so let's balance some of that potential in China versus a slowdown, particularly of the consumer in the States. So consumer in the States, roughly 15% of GDP, it's a big deal. So, so how are we thinking about balancing these admittedly very cheap markets, South Korea, Japan, China, Germany, against the slowdown of, of that you know, big demand pull in the States. Yeah. South Korea, Germany, Japan. Right? These are 
either export-led countries, in, especially in the case of Germany and South Korea, or with a very large export sector in the case of Japan. I have no doubts that if we do see a big recession or slowdown in the US, these countries will be hit. It's just the nature of you know, the largest economy in the world starting to slow down. But why would you be still interested in opportunities in those markets? So there's a few reasons. Certainly coming into this, these markets were considerably cheaper than their US counterparts. There's a few reasons. Uh, the first is I think you just had less of that sense of euphoria. You had less of that sense of kind of retail, buying single stock options, all of that throth that was going on in the US. And then the second is, in general, these stock markets just have less of those very, very hot areas, right? So all the SaaS stocks are pretty much listed in the US, not many listed in, in Germany and Japan. So generally, you've seen these markets come off. They've come off far less than the US or generally less than the US. And the starting valuations were considerably cheaper. The second interesting factor is we've seen some very large currency devaluations in these export countries, so particularly Japan and to a lesser extent the euro and the won. So you think about a Toyota motor company in this type of environment with the yen at 135, that is an incredibly competitive uh, position they have there. It's the same for Minabea, which we also own exporting precision motors and ball bearings around the globe. So those companies are in a fantastic position to gain market share and make quite good money in this environment. And it's the old adage, uh, Japan is looking pretty cheap as a holiday destination at the moment with the, with the yen. You should also think about buying some, some assets there when you can. So we have been interested in some of those export-led uh, led players Minabare, Infineon in, uh, in Germany around the power semis. Just touching, we touched on Germany a couple of times, but I mean, clearly Europe has fundamental challenges, many of which are of, of its own creation, you know, not least around energy policy and, and some of the machinations there. But I mean, also a bit wary or sheepish about reducing human tragedy to an economic or financial issue, but it is in terms of Ukraine. So so how are you thinking about Europe? Yeah, so the central issue in Europe is that is this, this is energy crisis, right? So you just have a fundamental change to the energy supply into that country and in particular gas. So Europe was sourcing 50% of its natural gas from Russia Natural gas is very hard to change the trade flow because it's gas. It is hard to transport. You either need the pipeline or you need the liquefaction facilities. Both take a long time to come online. So there's no quick and easy solution for that. And energy, sometimes we forget, it's just a fundamental building block to everything. So you triple your energy price, um, that starts affecting the competitive of some of your the competitiveness of some of your industrial base. You can't get energy. Well, I don't need to say it, right? It gets much worse. So that is a clear problem. Never count the Europeans out. I mean, there's 300 million of pretty industrious people, and 
when you are on a wartime footing. I, I believe they, you know, they've recently built the two liquefaction plants in record time, right? Whereas previously it would take five years because you need every permit underneath the sun, right? So the market can respond, but we know there's limits of physics, right? It will take time. So what are we doing in, in Europe? The nice thing is we don't invest in Europe. We invest in companies. So we need to think about, all right, well, there's a problem here. Who has the solution and where? who, who could be the beneficiaries of this? So in response, natural gas supply is going to be short in, in Europe, we think, for some time. You will try and substitute that where you can. You will try and electrify processes where you can. Who's a beneficiary of that? Infineon with the power semiconductors. So if we're talking about electric vehicles, if we're talking about other forms of high-voltage electrification, if we're talking about energy or electricity efficiency, a power semiconductors involved. And this is a giant industry, so even small changes in capital spending towards that can have an outsize effect. And you're a local company as well. So, and you've got a dominant position in the higher voltage ranges. So that to us looks, you know, that's a great example of a European business. You can buy that business on 13 times today. People are concerned because it's cyclical. It has a cyclical element to it. But you're looking at the future saying, well, we are a key supplier into electric vehicles and we are a key supplier into electrification. And you would assume there's going to be some very strong spending tailwinds around those two areas. So that's how we're trying to view it. So it's mid to late June. We're, what are we, high 50s exposed, net of cash, net of shorts. So lots to buy, but that's a very low level of exposure. So, so what are we reflecting in that behaviour in our own, you know, in our own exposure? Yeah, so I think it comes back to that, you know, some of the guideposts that we that we can use and also it comes back to where we started this conversation of saying, okay, well, look, we have seen a repricing in markets, a 20% fall in most broad indices. But let's put that into context. The 20% fall is a garden variety fall. I mean, you, you look at a 90-year period of history and, you know, you, you'll probably have 25 incidences where markets fell, you know, 20% or more. When you have a new and novel problem, and we've had three examples of that in the last 20 years, being the tech wreck, the GFC, and the global COVID shutdown, over that period, markets fell 40% roughly. So that kind of gives you your band of where sentiment can take you. I don't know how bad or big you know, the inflation problem is. So we've got inflation and we've got a bubble popping. You never know how bad that can be. But I do know it's probably not garden variety. And then when you compare that with other measures of sentiment, buy the dip mentality, is that still around? Again, that sense of apathy. Are investors, are they still excited as anything to be, to be getting the opportunity to buy now after a 15-year or 10-year bull market? Or are they kind of starting to disengage? You would say that we're not quite there yet and the best measure is just when opportunities are completely plentiful and I'd say there's far more opportunities than there were but it is not mouth-watering yet it's just coming from where we you know it comes back to where we've come from 
So 25% cash, 75% long. We still have the short book, so a good chunk of that 55% exposure is on the short, so we're still running, you know, 20-odd percent short book. And we're still finding opportunities to short. You know, we still have this hangover from the very distorted COVID spending. We've seen some big falls in some of these hot areas, but there is some incredibly, say, dubious business models that were completely reliant on, you know, running loss-making business models, completely reliant on capital market funding, which we don't think that funding will be there over the next 12 months. So there's still opportunities there. So I think on balance, say... Things are starting to get interesting, but we're still not at that. If you think about the phasing, the first phasing will be that short book goes from 20% to zero, and then that 25% of cash goes to zero. And we're not quite there yet, but we're starting, you know, we are starting to ramp up that buying activity. Clay, excellent. Thank you very much. Very enjoyable talking to you, and we hope useful for the listener. Thank you. Thank you, Jules.